Let's get our Bibles out this morning. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 2. As you get there, I'm going to just thank the Lord for the word this morning and then introduce our sermon series here, where we're going. Father, we just thank you, Lord, this morning that we can come together and be in your word. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you open up the word to us and give us the ability to understand and apply it to our lives. We know without you, Holy Spirit, that's an impossibility. But with you, the word comes alive to us and it changes us from the inside out. And I pray that on Monday, we'd have something that you gave us on Sunday to put into practice in our lives. I pray that in Jesus' name when the church said, Amen. Amen. Well, in all our learning about repentance, we spent many weeks, I'm not sure how many it was, maybe nine or even 10 weeks in our series on repentance. And hopefully we learned a lot of what Jesus taught the churches because in the book of Revelation, uh, five out of the seven churches were told to repent. So we learned what it was that they had gone off track about and how Jesus had given them correction. Uh, in learning about repentance, we looked at these five churches in great detail, but there are two churches in the book of Revelation that are not told to repent. And so this little sermon series that we're going to do here is called Pleasing the Lord. And uh, we're going to spend a couple weeks here, but how many understand there were two churches that were so pleasing to the Lord that Jesus offered them no criticism, no correction, and no call to repentance? And I don't know about you, but I want to live a life like that. I want to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord. And this little sermon series here on these two churches that we're going to cover are all about pleasing the Lord. It's important for us to know what pleases the Lord. How many of you who are married say you've learned what pleases your spouse? Amen. Just a few quivering hands going up. Husband's hands going up and the wife is going. But if you love someone, you want to know how to please them. You know, I don't wake up every morning and go, I'm going to make this woman miserable, Lord, give me inventive ways and new ways. No, I want to please my wife. I, I love my sons. I want to be a blessing to them. Amen. Anyone you love, you want to please. You don't do things to purposely hurt them or annoy them. And so we as believers need to learn how to please the Lord, amen? And there are things that definitely please the Lord, and there are things that definitely grieve the Lord. And so in learning from these two churches uh, what pleased the Lord and what made them, uh, you know, so pleasing to him that he has no correction for them is just a really important study for us. All of us in our lives at some point are going to have to make a personal choice. Sometimes we need to make this personal choice every day. Am I going to please others? Am I going to please myself? Or am I going to please the Lord? See, a lot of people just live to please others. And they're so under the control of man and the fear of man and the aggressiveness of other people that they're thinking, if I just make this person happy, my life will be tolerable. There again, if you have a, a, a marital relationship like that, that's not healthy. If you have a work relationship like that, that's not healthy. If we're living to please others, and you know, there's no shortage of other people that have demands that they want to put on our lives. They could be friends. They could be peers. They could be coworkers. They could be parents. But listen to me. You and I have to not please others before we please the Lord. 
Now, we're not going around trying to make others angry at us. If you're doing that, please schedule a counseling appointment and go see your doctor. But if we're trying to please others, we need to make sure we're pleasing the Lord first. Other people have agendas for you today, but make sure you do the will of God with your life. Other people have expectations for you today, but make sure first you fulfill the expectations of the Lord. So you got to choose, am I going to please others or am I going to please myself? Now, the second category is something that all of us kind of, you know, have a propensity towards. Why? Because we, we're wrapped in flesh and our flesh has demands and desires and opinions and attitudes and, you know, things that we gravitate toward. And it is just normal human behavior to want to please yourself. Now don't try and look holy out there and get all quiet on me. But when you and I wake up in the day, we're not thinking, you know, what can I do to make this a miserable day? No, what can I do that I want to do that's going to be fun for me, that this is going to be a great day? Now, that's not all wrong, but we've got to please the Lord first. If I decided, well, I want to go out on the lake today and sail a sailboat, and I'm supposed to be here preaching, then that was the wrong decision. Some of you are wishing right now I was on the lake. But we, we can always have this draw in us that we want to please ourselves. What do I want to do with my time? What do I want to eat? What do I want to put in my body? You know, when you look at a menu, what are you thinking? You know, what's the healthiest thing? No, what's going to taste the best? Got real quiet on that one. Try not to think about the diner right now. We're going to get through this. So we can please others. We can please ourselves or we can please God. Now, we can't please others and ourselves and please God. He's got to be first. But you know, what the, you know what the amazing thing is? When we please God, the, what flows down from our lives is pleasing to others in our life. When I'm serving God, my wife is happy with me. When I'm loving Jesus and having the right attitude, my sons are blessed by me. When, I, when I'm following after the call of God in my life, it should be a blessing to you. You see, when we put God first, everything falls into place. But if we don't put God first, everything's out of order. Everything's not in place, amen? So make that personal decision to please the Lord. Now, of all the things I've been shown by God and by others in my maturation process, being shown what was not to do was a helpful lesson. Did you ever see some people doing stuff and you just think, I am not doing that? Anybody? I've watched people and the Holy Spirit is going, pay attention, don't ever do that. And I learned from a lot of people what not to do. You say, well, was it a pleasant experience? Not at all. It was painful to go through some of those things, to be under people, certain jobs growing up. I mean, I, I, I can tell you stories, but I learned from a lot of people who are in authority over me what not to do. But the greatest lessons I've ever learned were from God and people when they showed me what I should do. Jesus is a prototype for us. You heard the word of the Lord this morning that our sister gave. You know, we're to be like Jesus and we're to have his heart. Amen? Did you hear that? Yes. And that's what we're supposed to, not to have our own attitude, our own bent, our own ideas, our own personality. You know, that gets lost in Christ and we begin to think like him and act like him and speak like him. Amen? The point of the drill is not to make a better version of Rick. It's to crucify Rick until Rick is like Jesus. I know you're praying for that. 
please, Lord, hurry up. But understand today, we are to be like Christ. We are to please the Lord. And being shown what not to do is a good lesson, but being shown what to do is an even better lesson. And Jesus is our example. I remember growing up uh, in the church and uh, being involved in ministry from a very young age. I started preaching at 14, and there was a time and a season in the church, some of you who are older will remember this, where a lot of ministries were falling. A lot of ministers were being exposed for immorality and uh, all kinds of things. How many of you remember that time in church history? And I remember looking at someone who was above me in the Lord and say, is there anybody out there doing it right? And the answer was dead silence because they weren't sure either. So understand, we need a good example. And really, uh, there are examples in humanity. There are examples in ministry. There are examples in the body of Christ. But Jesus is our example. He's our prototype. We need to follow him to the cross and find out what he thinks and how he feels and how he would act. You know, what would Jesus do is more than just a bracelet. It should be the mantra of our hearts that we want to be like Christ. We want to be pleasing to the Lord. Two out of the five churches were pleasing to the Lord. No criticism, no correction, no call to repentance. Now, these two churches that we're going to look at here in the next few weeks are Smyrna, the persecuted church, and Philadelphia, the favored church. We're going to look at those in detail. While we looked at the ones told to repent, let's look at the ones that were not called to repentance so that we can find out what they were doing that was pleasing to the Lord. Now, Jesus' interaction with Smyrna is chronicled in Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, and I'm going to read that to you. Listen with your hearts today. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. The one who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Now, we're going to go through a lot of that, but today, by God's grace, we're going to only cover verses 8 and 9. And to the angel of the church of Smyrna write, the first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Let's just stop there. Jesus is pleased with Smyrna. He doesn't criticize them. He doesn't correct them. He doesn't call them to repentance. And, he, you know, in the writing here, it starts in verse 8. And one thing we noted is that all the correspondence to the churches through Jesus were given through the angel that presided over that church. He says, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right? So there again, we're being reminded of the angelic covering over the church of Jesus Christ. We have angels among us today. We have angels guarding the full gospel center and guarding all the people in it. Amen. You know, I, I know a lot of us, you know, believe we have guardian angels and that some of us have had guardian angels that have had nervous breakdowns and have quit. You know, 
I've heard people say all kinds of things, but there is that angelic realm to think of. This correspondence is given through the angel and disseminated to the church. Uh, God just ordering, uh, honoring the structure there of heaven. And so he, he reveals himself to Smyrna in two ways, and they're powerful. He says, you know, I am what? The first and the last, in verse 8, who was dead and has come to life. So let's look at how Jesus reveals himself. Because he reveals himself to the church in a way that they need to know who he is. And the first thing he says to them is, I am the first and the last. Now that might sound like a nice title or kind of, you know, uh, you know a nice expression. But really, what, what is being implied there is the divinity of Jesus Christ. When he says, I'm the first and the last, he's saying, I'm preexistent. I'm eternal. I'm divine. I always was. Think about that. You know, Jesus, uh, pre-existent, involved in creation. He's saying, you know, I'm the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, the author and the finisher of your faith. And so he's showing his pre-existence. He's revealing himself to them as God. It's so important for us to understand Jesus is God. There are even some Christians who are confused about that. Well, he's God, but not like the Father. He's God Jr. No, he's fully God. And he came down from heaven being fully God, born of a virgin by the power of the Holy Spirit. He took flesh upon himself so that he could be fully God and fully man. Then he lived a perfect life and crucified that flesh and broke the power of sin. Come on, this is the gospel today, amen? That's why there's nobody like Jesus. There's no one who compares with him. There's no religious figure. There's no one who started a world religion who could say, I'm the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the author and the finisher, who is dead and who's now alive. There's no one who can say that. And he reveals himself to them. And then he says, who was dead and has come to life. Now, what that is showing is that Jesus is a prototype for all us believers. He was the firstborn from the dead among every uh, among brethren. That means he came first to, to kind of just spearhead the way as a prototype for us. That, you know, before Jesus died and was laid in that tomb and rose again, everyone who died, died in their sins and did not go into the presence of God. Even the righteous dead, you know, went into Abraham's bosom that was outside of Hades, outside of Sheol, and they waited for the cross to happen. And when the cross happened Jesus went down first he uh, he descended there and he liberated captivity and he took all of these righteous dead who were looking forward towards the cross into heaven into the presence of God but now because of what he has done because of the cross when we die the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with God amen we go right into the presence of God because of the blood of Jesus there's no laying in the dirt. There's no soul sleep. There's no purgatory. You're either saved or you're lost. And when you're saved, you die and go right into the presence of God. Your last breath on earth gives way to your first breath in heaven. Amen. That's the gospel. I'm the first and the last who was dead and has come to life. The possibility of new life, the possibility of resurrection power, the possibility of being born again. Jesus was the prototype for all of those things. In verse 9, he launches right into the three things he knew about Smyrna. Now understand, these three things that he lists here that he knew about them are going to be the things that pleased 
him about them. And so we need to take note of them and, and learn to apply them to our lives. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander by those who say they are Jews and are not. Let's look at those three things, tribulation, poverty, and slander. You might listen to that list and go, uh, I want to go home now. Because that, nothing on that list sounded fun. Like, nobody wakes up and goes, man, I'm hoping for some poverty and slander today. I hope by the time I get to work, there's rumors going around about me. You know, I, I hope, you know, for a pay cut and all kinds of trouble and tribulation. Going to be a good day. No, those things might not sound like things we would desire, yet these were the things that pleased Jesus about Smyrna to the point where he does not ask them to repent. Jesus' interaction with Smyrna, you know, starts off here, and, and he says, I know you, and I know this about you. So I want to just take a look at that. To be known is a little bit humbling. How many would admit that the people who really know you well, you know, that's a little humbling? Come on, all the married people, your spouse knows things about you that they didn't even want to know. I mean, they seem nervous this morning, brother. But, you know, it's like my wife knows me. She knows all about me. She knows things she didn't want to know. And to be known is a little bit humbling. In fact, the fact that it's so quiet here shows that being known is a little bit scary, too. So the people close to you know about you. And Jesus says, I know. And to be known is humbling. And so right away, we've got to put our pride down and our ego down. When Jesus says he knows something about us, he absolutely does. You know, people often deflect correction and criticism that's accurate by saying, you don't know me. Have you ever corrected someone on something or called someone uh, to accountability for something and their response is to snap back? You don't know me. As if you have to know every detail of their life to, you know, tell them to stop, you know, doing something that's obviously wrong. And, people, and, you know, people like that who will hide behind, well, you don't know me, so you can't judge me. They only know one scripture from the Bible, and it's not John 3.16. They know that when it says, judge not, least you be judged. <laughs> and really, the only scripture they know, they take out of context and misapply. Because the truth is, when I say something that's according to God's word to a person, that's not my judgment, that's the word of God. If I say to a man who's a friend of mine who I know is committing adultery, stop stepping out on your wife, you need to stop that, that's a sin, cut it out. He can't say, well, you're judging me, or he can't say, you don't know me. I know adultery is a sin that will cost you, you know, a trip to heaven, so I can say without fear of reservation, don't do that. I can confront a liar. I can confront a thief. I can confront a drunkard. The Bible says I have to do it in love, but that's not my judgment. In fact, the fact that Christians won't hold up the standard of God's word because they're afraid of being seen as judgmental or they're afraid of offending someone is partially why this world is in such a giant mess because we won't hold up the standard of God. 
We've got to do it in love. Don't be arrogant. Don't be condescending. Don't be religious. Man, I see, you know, I, I listen to a lot of preachers. I got to get fed too. And some of them I've listened to are so condescending, so judgmental. You would think they're the only ones preaching the truth. Their church is the only one that has saved people. And they're the only one that's got all the doctrine right. And, and I, like, I pick that stuff up and I'm like, oh, Lord, give me a break. Help me to spit out the bones and chew the meat. Sometimes, like, their message is like a chicken wing. It's mostly bone. But, you know, we, we've got to tell the truth in love. But we've got to tell the truth. So to, people who re- deflect criticism and correction say, you don't know me. Well, God knows and God's word is true. And listen... Uh, Ignoring the observations of those who do know us is foolish. When your spouse comes to you and offers you a correction or a criticism, I know that's the toughest thing to receive, isn't it? The thing I hate the most is when she's right. You know, and I'm sure when I say something that, you know, I can tell I'm saying something that's right, and sometimes maybe I don't say it in a nice way, I can tell she's not happy but we know that they're right. Man, you guys are petrified this morning. And and like, but we dismiss it. We dismiss what our spouse says. We dismiss what our parents say. You know, if your mom or your mother or your grandparents or your spouse or people who really know you are warning you or correcting you and you're just pushing them off, listen, that's foolish. There, There should be people in all of our lives that know us, that we trust enough to receive correction from. If there's nobody in your life that can correct you or call you on the carpet, you are in a dangerous spot. In fact, you've been singled out from the pack and you're easy pickings for the wolves. Understand, the people who know us best are gonna see things in us. You know, married people, my wife covers my blind spots. I cover hers. I see and feel and know things that she doesn't pick up on and she does the opposite. Do you see that's part of the completeness we have in, in the marital relationship? So don't just push off criticism and correction. Jesus says, I know you. Now, Smyrna is getting a good report here, and they are known and they are humbled, but what he says to them is powerful because it's pleasing to him, and we're going to see that we need to incorporate these things into our lives so that we, in fact, can please him as well. He knew three things about Smyrna, and the first one he, he knew was this, I know your tribulation. You know, I know your tribulation. Now, you know, tribulation is trial. Tribulation is suffering. There again, not something we would choose. No one would choose to suffer. No one would choose tribulation. So he knew their poverty, and he knew their tribulation, and he knew that they were slandered. Let's look at that tribulation today. Tribulation is not something we would choose. So all of us would choose an easy life if we had a choice. And you know what? The thing was that they didn't have an easy life. Uh, They had a a rough time being believers in a hostile cultural environment that they were in. We're going to unpack that a little more in the second point. But just understand, those in Smyrna didn't have an easy life, and it was all because they chose to follow after Jesus. It ostracized. It ostracized them from the culture. It ostracized them from, you know, everything that they were in, and it cost them because the culture that they were in was hostile. The environment where they lived was hostile. And it's amazing what people will compromise to have an easy life. 
There are Christians, there are churches, denominations, and pastors who have compromised the word of God so that they are politically correct and not offensive. There are whole denominations that have compromised their stance on the word of God and don't preach certain things because they're offensive. And it's amazing to me, as a shepherd and as a believer, what people will compromise to have an easy life. Well, if I say this, I'll have the church this size. If I don't say this, I'll have a church this size. Smyrna wasn't willing to compromise. They were willing to embrace tribulation in that hostile environment they were in because they wanted to remain true to Jesus Christ. Now, listen to me. People do compromise to have an easy life, and if that's in us, we need to repent. But Jesus never promised us an easy life. Did you know that? John 16, These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. Jesus speaking. In this world, you will have tribulation. But take courage. I have overcome the world. You see, yeah, there's a lot of trouble out there for us every day. There's enough trouble for each of us every day. There's no shortage. But Jesus has overcome the world. So when we're in him, we're overcomers as well. But he promised us that we're going to have trouble. And I know there again, if we could rewrite certain scriptures, we would. Think about it here like this one. These things I have spoken to you that in me, you will have no trouble at all. But take courage. Your life will be easy, a life of ease without trouble. First Rick 2.5. It's not what it says. It's, it's the opposite of what we would want, but it's what Jesus promised us. You know, many people look at the Apostle Paul and rightfully are admirable of this man's amazing spiritual accomplishments went from persecuting the church, a Pharisee, uh, one who studied under Gamaliel, who knew the Old Testament inside out and backwards, gets saved and, you know, totally transforms the Gentile world, becomes the apostle to the Gentiles, multiplied millions, including us, are the fruit of his ministry. The guy writes two-thirds of the New Testament, the most powerful and profound theology, like in the book of Romans, all Paul. I mean, this guy is an impressive guy. Yet there'd be people who say, man, I wish I I was like Paul. Careful what you wish for. You know, if you look at Paul's life, from the moment he got saved, from the moment God knocked him down on the Damascus Road, he had trouble and trial and drama all the way through. It was not an easy life for Paul. In 2 Corinthians 1.8, he describes, you know, one time where they had so much tribulation, this is how he felt. He says, for we do not want you to be unaware. Paul's saying, don't be, you know, deceived here. This is the reality. I I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of our affliction, which occurred in Asia. And we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despised even of life. Paul says it got so bad, it got so rough, it got so, uh, you know, ridiculous that we didn't even want to live anymore. You ever been there? God, take me home now. Not, not later, not today, now. Take me home. I've had it. Man, some of you must have chose to live a life of ease. But when you're really serving the Lord, when you're really about kingdom business, you're going to attract opposition. 
And Paul, from the beginning to, I mean, that was the start of his life. He started off blind and, you know, led by the hand, and he ended up being beheaded. And if you look at what was in the middle, he was stoned, he was beaten, he was thrown out of synagogues, he was left for dead, he was thrown out of cities, he was shipwrecked for a day and a night. You know, I talked about this on Wednesday. What a resume this guy had. So affliction, tribulation is part of the Christian experience. I know we don't get excited about it, but this, those in Smyrna were willing to endure tribulation rather than to conform to the culture that was hostile to them. And because of it, they suffered, and Jesus was pleased with their choice. Jesus knows the backlash you deal with. Jesus knows the opportunities that you've lost, the relationships that were ended because you love him. And the fact that you chose him over those things pleases him. Number two, he was pleased to know about their tribulation. He was pleased to know about their poverty. Then again, poverty is another thing we would never choose. If on that same sheet of paper, there were boxes to check, would you like to be rich or poor? I would question your mental state if you selected poor. I really would, because most of us would like abundance, have more than enough, amen? Oh, you're trying to act holy on me this morning. But the truth is, none of us want lack, but yet sometimes in lack, it's when we learn the provision of God the most. Sometimes it's in lack where we learn to see the faithfulness of God. Sometimes it's lack that drives us to our knees where prosperity makes us haughty. I'm just telling the truth in church. Jesus looked at them and he said, I know, I know your poverty. Now, why does Jesus look at the financial weakness of this church to be a strength, to be an asset, or, or to be a testimony to their faithfulness. I'll tell you why. It's because of why this church was impoverished. The church at Smyrna was poor because greatly in part to the fact that they refused to worship Caesar. You see, they were, as most of the world at that time, a Roman colony, and Roman colonies had to submit to the rulership of Rome, and Rome demanded that you worship Caesar in order to be a Roman citizen or to enjoy the benefits of Rome. So there was actually idols and altars within all locations where people would have to take a pinch of incense and throw it into the fire and worship Caesar. And Christians had a problem with that. And Christians should have a problem with that because we will worship no king, no false god. We will worship Jesus Christ alone. And these Christians at Smyrna would not worship Caesar. And so what happened is it cost them. Not only did it ostracize them culturally, but it cost them financially. Why? Because they refused to practice idolatry. See, when you and I bow down to the world system, when you and I compromise or allow ourselves to get lukewarm or doctrinally weak because of the world system, that is in essence bowing down to an idol. That's worshiping Caesar. When we dilute the word of God, when we uh, don't talk about certain topics that we know are offensive to the world, when we change what comes out of our pulpits to be politically correct instead of biblically correct, that's bowing down to Caesar. That's bowing down to Baal. That's worshiping an idol. And these guys wouldn't do it. And so what did Rome do? They punished them. They came in and seized their businesses, seized their assets, seized their houses, and left them poor. And what did they do? 
Well, they called the ACLU and they filed the laws. No. They put a dream team of lawyers together and they went on. No. They took it because they loved Jesus more than they did their material possessions. They loved Jesus more than the, the affirmation of man and culture. And they refused idolatry and it cost them financially. Now, Laodicea was the exact opposite. Remember Laodicea, the lukewarm church? Jesus rebuked them hotly. Why? Because they'd become lukewarm and compromised so that they could be financially successful, and they were. They were so rich that they felt like, we don't need anything. We don't need God. We don't need more church. We don't need a move of the Holy Spirit. We got everything we need, Lord. We don't need nothing, Jesus. We're good. And he said, man, you're blind, poor, wretched, and naked. Come on, it wasn't too long. We just finished up on that. But here's the exact opposite in Smyrna. They refused to compromise, and they got poverty. Laodicea got lukewarm, and they became rich. Jesus says to them immediately, you know, I know your poverty, but you are rich. And this is what I want you to see. Look, if you are a born-again, spirit-filled believer in Jesus Christ, you are not poor. I don't care what your bank account says. I don't care how small your house is. I don't care what car you drive. Listen, I've driven cars coming up in the ministry where I had cars that used more oil than gas. I had to pull into the gas station and say, change the oil and check the gas. You know, it was just, I'll never forget. And we never, it didn't bother us. My wife never complained. She was like, you need to quit and get a better job. You know, no, we were in this together for the ministry, for the kingdom, amen. I understand something today. Serving God sometimes will cost us jobs and promotions and relationships and, 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 Jesus looks down at those who are willing to pay that cost, and he is pleased. Laodicea got rebuked. They got called to repentance. Smyrna got no rebuke. They got affirmed. Jesus says, you are rich, and we need to realize we're rich, and that our richness doesn't come from the material possessions we amass. His view of Smyrna shows the illegitimacy of the prosperity gospel, uh, some of you are, you know, again, old enough to remember when the prosperity gospel was a big thing and you had preachers, you know, focusing on offerings and taking up and telling you your wallet needs to be full and you need to have this and you need to have that as if that our richness was some gauge of our spirituality. When the truth is, you know, you, you can be loaded and spiritually broke and, you know, you can be poor and spiritually rich. And so the prosperity gospel was something that was, you know, a distraction and, and a departure from the true gospel. And thank God the body of Christ has rejected that and realized that, no, it's not about what I amass and how much I have and how big my house is and if I have a boat and a vacation home. It's about serving the purpose of God for my life. Amen. That's the truth. You know, sometimes having a lot of stuff is just problematic. You remember, who remembers, man, starting off young? We were in a small apartment. We had furniture that didn't match, hand-me-down. I mean, it was just simple. And now, you know, it's like, oh, you want to be a homeowner. You want to be a homeowner. It's like, you know, and everything breaks, and they look at me, you're going to fix that, you know? We get home, the refrigerator, big puddle underneath. Now I'm a plumber. The roof's leaking. Fix this. You got to mow this, cut that, fix this, call this guy. Fix. My driveway's washed out now. I got to rent a, an excavator. 
Pastor Mike is home this morning because his basement flooded. Sometimes the more we possess, the more we're possessed. My, my mom taught me that. So having a little and being content is much better than having too much and being controlled by it. Jesus says, I know your poverty. The rich young ruler was someone that Jesus interacted with and wanted to know what to do to be saved. And in Matthew 19, starting in verse 20, Jesus says to him, well, keep all the commandments and this one. And the kid says to him, I've done all that since my youth. Think about that. There's not too many of us that would stand up in church and basically say, I've kept all the commandments since my youth. We'd be like afraid that the lightning would hit us. But this guy says it, and Jesus don't correct him. So he was not only rich and not only successful, but he was a moral guy. And he had a heart to please God. Because he's coming to Jesus and saying, what do I got to do to be saved? And Jesus told him, sell all you have and give it to the poor and then follow me. And the guy went away sad. Because the Bible says he had many possessions. See, sometimes the abundance, sometimes the wealth, sometimes the prosperity is more of a stumbling stone than it is a blessing. And the simplicity of having just enough and allowing God to be our provider is more of a blessing than struggling with the wealth and how it becomes an idol to us. So being rich does not legitimize our spirituality. Being financially successful does not make us spiritually rich. What makes us spiritually rich is that we're in right relationship with Jesus. So this morning, I don't care what your bank account looks like. I don't care how, how much money you have in your wallet. If you love Jesus and you're in right relationship with him, you are the richest people on the planet this morning. Amen. In fact, turn to somebody and tell them, I'm rich. I'm rich. That's good. You look like you're having fun out there. So he knew their tribulation. He knew their poverty. He saw both of them as a strength. And then we conclude with this. He knew that they were being slandered by the wicked. Say slander. And the slander by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. So let's look at this. First of all, what is slander? Slander is false, defamatory statements spoken about someone for the purpose of damaging their reputation. So it's important we get this definition. It's false. It's not when someone says something true, true about us. You know, there's times where, you know, Somebody says something about us, and it's true. Have you ever been there? You know, somebody says that Bernie Madoff was a thief. Well, he was a thief. So that's not slander. It's something false that's said about us that's unsubstantiated, and the person probably knows it's not true, but they're saying it to destroy our reputation, to marginalize us, to dismiss us. And people do this to Christians all the time. Why? They've got to call you crazy. They've got to call you judgmental. They've got to call you phobic of something. Why? Because if they admit that we're right, they need to change their behavior and listen to the truth of the gospel. So they've got to slander. And the people in Smyrna were slandered. Why? They wouldn't worship Caesar. So now they're out of step with the culture. So there were those there, and it was primarily a religious group that was the main source of the slander. So this group was saying false things about them to destroy their relationships. 
Could you imagine being in a place, being in a culture where you're constantly lied about as a believer? Well, you shouldn't have to imagine too hard because that's the way our world is right now. Do you realize what the world says about the church when it stands up against immorality? You're intolerant, you're phobic, you're judgmental, you're this, you're that. I could go on and on with example after example, but it's really a moot point because you know it's true. The world is hostile to the truth of the gospel. The world slanders those who dare to live the gospel of Jesus Christ. And why do they do that? To delegitimize us, to marginalize us, to make us irrelevant, to make us look crazy. The people in Smyrna were fact-checked by independent fact-checkers. And their doctrine and their practices were deemed to be false information. They were called insurrectionists because they didn't worship Caesar. They were an enemy of the state. Is any of this rhetoric sounding familiar to you? The devil has no new tricks. He does the same thing throughout the ages over and over again. He he didn't just think of this, well, I'll get them to be called phobic or I'll get them to be called crazy. No, he does the same thing. Those in Smyrna dealt with what we deal with, but I think, you know, in a way, to a larger degree, they dealt with the affliction of being slandered and constantly lied about. The main source of the slander comes from an interesting place, from apostate Jews. Now, this is not that all Jews in that time were against the church. No, the church was made primarily up of converted, completed Jews. There were Jews who had tolerance for the new sect that they called the way, but there were also Jews who were religious and lost, and and Jesus basically says they're frauds. Why? Because, you know, they're apostate. You're slandered by Jews, those who say they are Jews and are not. So these people were not even practicing Judaism that God gave them. They were just religious rule keepers. And understand something. The religious systems of the world, the cults of the world, will always hate and oppose and resist and slander those who live the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're not going to have, you know, they're not going to be friendly towards us. And you can tell where a person is spiritually by how they oppose the truth. And these Jews were apostate and they were frauds because Jesus is like, they're not Jews, they're just religious. And you know what? They are of the synagogue of Satan. Ouch. Boy, Jesus really knew how to stick it where it hurt, right? You know, he's basically, you know, you guys are fraud. You're you're devil worshipers. Your father's the devil. He said that to him. You worship your father, the devil. You say Abraham's your father. Remember when Jesus was winning friends and influencing people? Remember how he had those nice speeches? (laughs) He just called it like it was, amen. You know, that's another thing. Christians, we're taught to be always nice and not judgmental. Sometimes we've got to tell the truth in love and just tell it like it is. We're not helping anybody by toning it down so it's not offensive. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace but a sword. Hmm. All the Peters out there. Yeah, sword. Let's get the sword. (laughs) Careful with your sword. 
But they were slandered. It wasn't true. They were constantly made to look foolish and irrelevant. Everything was blamed on them. Do you realize in the Roman Empire, before Christianity took root in the empire under Constantine, they blamed the Christians for everything. There was a drought, it's the Christians' fault. There was a flood, it's the Christians' fault. Rome burned, the Christians did it. They killed us, fed us to wild animals, cut us in half, used us as human torches in their coliseums. Rome persecuted the church and hated the church. And Smyrna felt the full brunt of that. Yet they were unwavering because they loved Jesus more than the comforts of this world. So they suffered tribulation. They suffered poverty. They suffered slander. I want to close with this. There are two ways to handle slander. And both of them are legitimate. And we need the leading of the Holy Spirit to know how to handle slander. The first way to handle slander is to ignore it. There are times where people will say things about you, make accusations about you, criticize you falsely, and the right answer is to say nothing. There's times where we just need to be quiet and let the hold our peace and let the Lord fight our battle, amen? Not to defend ourselves. You say, well, where'd you get that from? Uh, well, I got it from a very reliable source, Jesus. And Jesus was depicted in Isaiah 53 as the suffering servant. In verse 7, it says this about him. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb who was led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. He didn't defend himself before the high priest. He didn't defend himself before Pilate. He just stood there. Why? Because he came to die, and he knew at the hands of wicked men who would cast false accusations against him. Think about the slander that the high priest cooked up when they brought false witnesses against him to try and trump up charges against him to sentence him to death. He didn't defend himself. He was quiet. Now, see, you know, this makes some of us sweat. Because we can't help but defend ourselves. You know, we'll defend ourselves if we're wrong. I'm going to let that settle in. No, I would never do that. How many people have been in a fight with their spouse and halfway in you knew you were wrong, but you kept arguing your point? Come on, you guys. You're lying. You're sitting there. You've done this all the time. You know, and, and then, you know, now because we have Google, people can look things up instantly. You know, you're trying to pull the battery out of their phone. <laughs> but it's like, you know you're wrong and you still argue. So people will defend themselves even when they know they're wrong. Can you imagine being right and then just being quiet? Wow. Takes discipline. Takes integrity. Takes spiritual maturity. Like when the pastor says something you do and you look in church like you don't do that anymore. So that's one way to handle slander, just to be like Jesus and be quiet. And if the Holy Spirit prompts us to do that, we should have the courage to do it. There's another way to handle slander, and that's to confront it head on. And, and all the Peters got their swords out, right? Because some of us, man, we like a good fight. We like to argue a point. We like to defend ourselves. Don't raise your hand. This is not the altar call. But there is a time where we need to stand up for the truth and to defend the truth. We need to always do it in love. And we need to do it in the leading of the Holy Spirit. But there's a time for us to stand up against the slander and to answer it with the truth. 
Now, how many know Jim Cimbala? He's the pastor of Brooklyn Tabernacle. Now, let me see some hands. Not that many of you. Great man of God planted this church in uh, Brooklyn, and they have just an incredible prayer ministry there. I remember as a young man in Bible school going to Brooklyn Tab and seeing lines lined out, uh, uh, out of the church around the block of people waiting to get in to pray. And then getting in there and just prayer going on everywhere. Sometimes the people would pray so long that the pastor would have to sit down and then go home. We wore him out. And so, you know, they would pray and nobody would leave. Just a powerful church. And Pastor Simbala wrote this book called Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. When I was uh, in New York School of Urban Ministry, I went down there. He had just written the book. He was signing them and giving us a copy, gave me a copy. And there's some powerful powerful testimonies in there, but he told this story about the policy of his church concerning gossip and slander. He said, about 20 years ago, I said something impromptu to the new members who were lined up at the front of the church as we received them. The Holy Spirit prompted me to say this, and now I charge you that if you ever hear another member speak an unkind word of criticism or slander against anyone, and even myself or another, that you stop that person mid-sentence and say, excuse me, who hurt you? Who ignored you? Who slighted you? Was it Pastor Simbala? Let's go to his office right now, and he'll apologize to you, and then we can pray that God restores the peace to this body. But we won't let you talk critically about people who are not present to defend themselves. To this day, every time I receive new members, I say much the same thing because I know it's not drugs or government oppression or even a lack of funds that destroys churches, but rather gossip and slander that grieves the Holy Spirit. Could you imagine how the culture of the church would be changed if when someone started to badmouth another believer or the, pastor, the pastoral staff that the person stopped them mid-sentence? How many times have we heard somebody just talking and you're like, ah, I don't want to hear this. I don't want to, but yet we don't want to offend them so we don't say anything. Sometimes we should stop them and say, you know what? This is none of my business. This is gossip. Why don't you make an appointment with the pastor and talk to him about it? Now, I know some of you are going, I'm not doing that but it would change the culture of the church. So if the Holy Spirit leads us to be silent, we are silent. If he leads us to confront, we do it in love. Now, I found out something about myself. This may not be true of you, but I found out in my life when it's time to be quiet, I'm usually flapping my gums. And when it's time to speak up, I get all quiet. We need God's help. We need God's help to have the courage to be bold when he tells us to speak up and not just go, oh, I don't want to hear this, and then avoid that person. And people think, well, nobody wants to hang out with me because you're negative, bitter, and critical. Welcome to Full Gospel Center. Uh, but when we're supposed to speak up, we'd have the courage to do so, and when we we're supposed to be quiet, we'd have the integrity to be quiet. So Jesus knew some things about Smyrna, and he was impressed with them, and they pleased him, that they chose tribulation uh, and poverty over the idolatry of conforming to the world, that they suffered the slander of religious apostates, and, and they did it because they loved him, and they didn't want to be accepted by the religious crowd, but they wanted to be in right relationship with the Son. Let's bow our heads today.
Father, I thank you for this study. It's important that we know what pleases you. And as we embark on these little journeys, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would etch these things into our hearts so that we would practice them, Lord. We wouldn't care what other people thought. We would, we would suffer slander and we would sacrifice uh, position and favor to please you that we wouldn't bow the knee to Baal. We wouldn't bow to idols. We wouldn't conform to the, the, the correctness of this world. With that in love, we live the gospel as an example to all men and in doing so, it would point to you. I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.